Please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. The title of the sermon today is Putting Yourself Aside. We'll be looking at verses 18 all the way through chapter 4, verse 1. Back in 2009, Michael Jordan was enshrined in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. But right before he came up to do his introductory speech, there was a, a video montage of all of his career highlights. This letter to Colossians serves as a, a montage of the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. He is the head of the body, the church. And in a display of matchless grace, God has inseparably connected us to Christ. And as a result, there's one overarching command that is given in chapter 3. He says, keep seeking the things above. Or to say it differently, set your mind on the things above. And then Paul proceeds to explain how to do that throughout the rest of the chapter. The first thing that he says to do is to kill our sinful desires. The idolatrous yearnings that clamor for our affections. We're to kill those things. We're also to strip away our sinful attitudes. Then we're to clothe ourselves in the attire appropriate of the new man. The final way we're to set our minds on the things above is by setting ourselves aside. That's what we're going to see today. I'm reading from the NASB, verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than men, knowing that it is from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. I hope you've seen from that brief initial reading that our connection to Jesus Christ isn't something that remains in quarantine. It affects every relationship that we have. Let's look at verse 18 more in depth. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Now, the secular world views submission in the context of marriage as socially repulsive, and that's often because it's caricatured and not distinguished from slavery. Let's be honest, submission has connotations of slavery. And naturally, if you believe that slavery is wrong, insofar that you think submission indicates that, then you're gonna think that submission is also wrong. But what does Paul mean when he says, be subject to your husband. The word used is hupotasso. It's a Greek military term, and it means to arrange as in troops in a military fashion under the command of a leader. So for this verse, in this context, you can think of submission simply as willingly placing yourself under the authority of another in keeping with your ultimate responsibility to Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful, I'm gonna say it again. It means willingly placing yourself under the authority of another in keeping with the ultimate responsibility that you have to Jesus Christ. 
Biblical submission is willingly given. It's your free choice. It's not under coercion. It's not done under intimidation. It is self-imposed. We're not talking about subjugation. So if a husband were to say, I'm going to make my wife submit and think that he is fulfilling this, this verse, he's in error. It is willingly given. It's also placing yourself under the headship of another. It is standing under the leadership of another. It's not laying down your intelligence or your dignity or even your self-worth as a human being, as if you're a, a doormat. The implication is that you are walking in step with and under the umbrella leadership of your husband. To do otherwise would be as silly as walking in the rain with an open umbrella away from your body. The wife who is biblically submissive recognizes the headship position of her husband in their marriage as God ordained and therefore yields to him as the final authority or having the deciding verdict on any matter pertaining to their marriage or family. That does not mean that he makes every decision, but the buck stops with him. Now notice that it says wives submit. Now this is not the idea that your husband is barking out orders and you're kowtowing and obeying him. That is not the idea. In fact, if you look at the verses, obedience is only used of children and servants or slaves. Now that's not to say that obedience is not entailed in submission, but that's not the emphasis that Paul is getting at here. Tied to the concept of submission is cooperation with one in authority and unity of purpose towards a common goal. Obedience calls for compliance to a command. Submission calls for cooperation for a purpose. You have to have a spirit of humility. Look at the verse again. Submission has its limits. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. That phrase, as is fitting in the Lord, speaks to the manner in which submission is to be done. Your submission to your husband is steered or guided by your ultimate responsibility to Christ. In other words, you are not to comply with anything that asks you to disobey Jesus Christ's words, even if it comes from your husband. Pastor Rob is famous for using Mrs. McGillicuddy in his example, so I'm just going to pull her for our example today. If Mrs. McGillicuddy is your supervisor at work, and after sharing with you that she's fallen in hard times financially, she says to you, why don't you put the, the funds from today's deposit in my purse, just so I can pay my mortgage. Now you guys know that even though she is your supervisor, meaning that she has authority over you in the realm or sphere that is your workplace, if you follow her directive, you would be in violation of God's law, right? You know that intuitively. The same is true in your marriage. God has placed the husband as the head of the house, and the extent of his authority as head stretches only as far as his direction does not violate your responsibility to Christ. Submissiveness, then, is measured by the degree of deference. Wives, let's say you and your husband have a decision to make, but you still disagree. You've weighed the pros and the cons, but now it's time to make the, the choice, the decision. Who gets a deciding vote? Do you respond to your husband with the respect that is due to the leadership position that he's been placed in by God? Once that decision has been made, if it's not favorable, do you, do you rib him about it? Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. The word for love there is agapaho. We're familiar with agape. That's the noun form of the same word. Agapaho is the verb. 
It is a commitment of the will, often accompanied by emotion, but not necessarily led by it, that leads to action on behalf of someone else without the expectation of something else in return. It is a commitment of the will. It is fixed, undeterred. It is pointed towards the course of action that is in the best interest of the beloved. Agapaho love is a call to action. It is not a feeling. Sometimes I get the impression that some men believe that, and when I say men, I mean husbands, not necessarily Calvary men here, but they believe that romantic affection, if their romantic affection has waned to that of a distant memory, then the terms or conditions of their marriage covenant are null and void. As if the feeling of affection is some barometer for agapaho love. This is the love that God commands. Just as submissiveness is measured by the degree of deference to the one in authority, agapaho love is measured by the degree of action on behalf of the beloved. When your baby cries at 2.37 a.m. in the morning, affection doesn't drive you out of bed. It doesn't rouse you out of bed. And it's not even the thought that, you know what, one day in the future, when this baby grows up and I'm old and I can't take care of myself, the baby's gonna take care of me. That's why I'm gonna get up and do it. That's not why you get up. What drives you out of bed is the commitment that you made to that child on day one, to act in the best interest of that child. That's the love God is talking about here. And husbands, that is the love that our Lord demands of us for our wives. Agapaho love surveys the top shelf of our life. It picks out all of our self-interests and it places her thoughts, her desires, her aspirations, her feelings, her welfare in its place. It prioritizes them over our own. It's not necessarily, it's not the point that we would fulfill all of the things that she wants, but it prioritizes her over us. The command is also in here to not be embittered, and that is packed with insight. It is written in the passive voice, but it's functioning in the middle voice. Now in English, we don't have the middle voice in English, but you may remember the passive voice indicates that the subject of a sentence is acted upon. So for example, the ball hit me. If me is the subject of that sentence, I'm being acted upon by the ball. But if I say, I hit myself, I am the subject, I'm performing the action, and I'm hurting myself. That's the idea of what embitteredness means here. If a husband is embittered against his wife, he's also embittered against himself. He's contaminating himself. Paul is saying, don't leave anger unchecked to fester and gnaw away at you. It poisons you too. Don't call her sweetie and then act as if she is Cersei. <laughs> so husbands, are you living with your wives in an understanding way? In order to understand her, you have to know her. You have to study her. You have to listen to her. What are her likes and dislikes? You may feel strongly this way about X, but how does she feel about X? Have you asked? Do you help her with chores around the house? Do you do things with her that she likes to do that you may never care to do? I remember Pastor Fred had shared when he was dating Sister Helen, you had to go to, uh, I think it was the Dundas, watching plays. He had no interest in it at all. But now he likes it, right? He does. <laughs> marriage has a sanctifying effect on both marriage partners when we're in obedience to God. L let me illustrate it this way. Psychologist and author, Jordan Peterson recently said this in a lecture. 
Parents speak to their young children at a level that slightly exceeds their current level of comprehension. I've seen some of you speak to my son, Clay, and I've seen some of you speak to babies. You know, it's always in a high-pitched voice, hi, how are you? That baby doesn't understand, especially a newborn, what you're saying. But when you speak to young kids, you speak to them in simple sentences so that they can understand. You do it so they can understand, but as well as that, you do it so that you can facilitate the development of that child's ability to communicate. So that when you communicate with that child, you push them to the edge of their capacity for comprehension. Psychologists call this the optimal zone of the acquisition of skill. Sounds fancy. As a result, you are helping that child develop their comprehension skills. In a similar way, God has designed the triumphs and the trials of marriage to facilitate our spiritual development. When a wife in loving obedience to God submits to her husband, and when a husband in loving obedience to God loves his wife, yes, they may be pushed to their respective capacities for self-restraint and love, but the growth that, that stems from that is what we call godliness. Now, I think one of the reasons why wives submitting and husbands loving causes such tension is because we fear suffering indefinitely. As a parent, you know that if you wake up at 2.37 a.m. religiously, whether your child has to, needs a diaper change or needs a bottle or is teething, you know as a parent that that is going to come to an end. But in marriage, there's no guarantee of that. You may be a wife here today and you may be submitting to your husband faithfully to the Lord and he may not be loving. You may be a very loving husband and your wife may still tear down your authority as head of the home. Take heart. Hear the words of Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Are you entrusting yourself to God? Are you entrusting your spouse to God? Have you entrusted your marriage to God? The same God that we sang about, that he's able to do all things. Do you think he can do something in your marriage? Cast all your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. The next relationship is verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now the word children here refers to what we call minors today, and obedience is moving to the tune or the beat of instruction. And the scope of that is in all things, meaning every area of life. And I can hear some of the children now telepathically. But my parents are so unreasonable, man. Chores, studies, can I use my phone? If you're old enough to drive, can I use the car when you want? There's a curfew if you are allowed to go out. They even tell you what to eat. I did it to Clay last night. No matter how moronic you feel your parents' instructions are, unless you are instructed to do something that contradicts God's word, you are to heed the instruction of your parents, period. It's that simple, but it's not easy. I'm gonna tell you something, children that are here today, that you probably already know. You don't think about it, but you know it. Every parent was once a child. So I have a message today from a child who grew up. He had his own son. 
have picked up some excerpts from his letter. My son, listen to me when I correct you. Don't ignore what your mother teaches you. What you learn from us will bring you honor and respect, like a crown or a gold medal. When I, when I was my father's little boy and my mother's dear son, my dad taught me this. He said, pay attention to what I say. Obey my commands and you will have a good life. You want to have a good life? Try to get wisdom and understanding. Don't forget my teaching or ignore what I say. Don't turn away from wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will keep you safe. The first steps to becoming wise is to look for wisdom. So you use everything you have to get understanding. Love wisdom and she will make you great. Hold on to wisdom and she will bring you honor. Wisdom will reward you with a crown of honor and glory. Don't ever let love and loyalty leave you. Tie them around your neck and write them on your heart. Then God will be pleased and think well of you so that everyone else will as well. My son, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be angry when he corrects you. The Lord corrects the one he loves. Just as a father corrects a child he cares about. That was Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Just as a father corrects a child that he cares about. Father, sometimes in our efforts to discipline or correct our children, we have a rather unfortunate knack for provoking them. That's, that's what the next verse said. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. It's important to remember that this is written to believers. And that word for father comes from a root word signifying an upholder, a nourisher, a protector. So you who are seeking to protect your children, to uphold them, to nourish their minds, be mindful of how you do this. As you seek to bring up your children in the training and instruction of the Lord, be careful how you teach, that is, that you are on the right path. Be careful how you reprove, you are not on the right path. How you correct, here's how to get back on the right path. How you train in righteousness. Here's how to stay on the right path. Because if you don't, you may have the unintended effect of disheartening your children. Sometimes we as parents don't know what to say or how to say it. Often we parent the way that we were parented. And I'm not advocating for coddling your children. Even the word coddling has the idea that it's extreme. But what I am warning against is incessant criticism saying things like, you always say X, or you always do this. Dr. Randy Schroeder from Focus on the Family and Ministry that many of us are familiar with, says the number one goal is to build a strong parent-child relationship. When you lovingly apply the rules, that's discipline, that will lead to a responsible decision-making child. So relationship plus the rules equals a responsible decision-making child, in that order. When the rules are prioritized before the relationship, that equals a child that rebels against their parents. So how do we get it right? Verbal unconditional statements of love. I love you no matter what. I love you with all of my heart. I'm proud of you. Physical touch, hugs and kisses. And if your kid can handle it, a well-placed body slam in the bed. Lengthy periods of quality, individual time spent inside and outside of the home, doing things that you may not necessarily want to do. Compliment more than you correct or criticize. 
So dads, as you seek to uphold, protect, and nourish your children with these loving affirmations, physical touch, and the time spent with your child, keep in mind that from your child's perspective, these very things help to shape your character. They don't see you at work, they see you at home. Your character is the currency in which you transact with your child. It's the medium of exchange in which you guys do business. So as you teach, there's receptivity. When you reprove, it's not regarded as scathing criticism. When you correct, it's considered as constructive. And as you train in righteousness, it's acknowledged as coming from someone who agapahos them, someone who genuinely loves them. So fathers, and by extension mothers, and aunts, and uncles, and grandparents, godparents, you need to have your fingers on the pulse of that relationship with the child. What do you feel when you put your fingers there? Is it a strong, vibrant pulse, indicative of a good, strong relationship? Or is it weak and anemic? There's still hope. Verse 22, slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external services, those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The word for slave is doulos, which means subservient to the disposal of his master. In Roman times, the term bondservant or slave could refer to someone who voluntarily served, but it usually referred to one who was held in a permanent position of servitude. And under Roman law, a bondservant was considered the owner's personal property. He or she had no rights and could even be killed by the owners or masters. The Apostle Paul here did not distinguish between whether this was voluntary or not. But what is clear is what he said. Listen to or heed the command, the command of your masters in all things. That's the extent of their obedience. Now what is detailed next is the way in which obedience is not to be done. It is not to be done with external service, which is service rendered under the master's watchful eye. The employer's presence naturally stimulates greater diligence and their absence, sluggishness. I'm sure many of you have people in mind. Hopefully no one has you in mind right now as we're here today. But this is the way of people pleasers. Paul then describes the manner in which obedience is to be done. He says, work wholeheartedly, all in, fully invested, fearing the Lord, now that does not mean work hard because you're scared of God. Do you remember Genesis 22? God told Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. So Abraham complied, and he took his son Isaac with some servants. And as they were walking to the place where Isaac was to be sacrificed, Isaac realizes, Father, where's the lamb? We have everything else, but where's the lamb? Do you remember what Abraham said to him? I myself will provide. God said that he would provide. Abraham had faith that God would provide the lamb. And just as Abraham was about to stick the knife into Isaac, the angel of the Lord stops him and says, Abraham, stop. Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Fearing the Lord then refers to an abiding reverence for the character of God, trusting in his word and promises, and that produces a wholesome dread of displeasing the Lord. Look at the next few verses, how it indicates that. Verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord 
rather than men. Whatever your vocation, you are to work from your soul, is a literal translation, as if you are working for the Lord, not just men. Do you see the reverence for God there? You're working for the Lord. Verse 24, knowing that it is from the Lord that you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. The reward of the inheritance is the eternal blessedness in the consummated kingdom of God, which is expected after Christ's return. What a promise. And if your working hard was in motivation enough, and if the reward itself was in motivation enough, that next line, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. This statement alone should give you pause. The dread of displeasing God should produce within us a righteous work ethic. And if that's not enough, verse 25. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. In Bahamian, if you don't listen, you can feel. You will feel the painful discipline of the Lord. God is impartial, unbiased. So what kind of servant are you? What kind of worker are you? What kind of employee? Do you work as unto the Lord? Are you punctual when you show up to work? And if you are, what do you do when you get there? Are you working wholeheartedly? Are you giving maximum effort? Or are you stealing time? Despite the poor pay, or the work conditions, or even the people that you work with, however long you are at the place that God has you serving, you are to do so wholeheartedly. My question for you is, is that you? The last group mentioned are the leaders or the masters. Masters or leaders, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Leaders, you are to render to each employee his due, that is passing just judgment, calling right right and calling wrong wrong, with fairness, guided by the realization that you too have a master in heaven, and one day you will have to give an account. So leaders, supervisors, managers, employers, owners, how do you treat those who work for you? Are you known for showing favoritism to some? Because God has placed you in a unique position of authority in your workplace. Or have you abdicated that responsibility to be just and fair because you're afraid of mashing toes? What about the employee who works righteously? You do remember that when the consequence for a wrong is not quickly carried out, it fills the hearts of the people to do wrong. Do you have the strength of character to humble yourself and regard those under your authority as more important or having a greater need than yourself? That's what this is all about. We are to recognize that those that we are in relationship with us, we are to regard them as having a greater need than ourselves. When wives submit, she is looking to her husband's leadership umbrella as being more important than herself. When a husband loves, he's looking and saying, my wife's interests are more important than my own. When children obey, they regard the parents' instructions as more important than what they want to do. When fathers, in particular, consider the way their children's hearts may feel by the way they interact with them, they're considering their children as more important than them. And the same is true for slaves in the way they work as well as masters or leaders. 
may we endeavor to regard one another as more important than ourselves. That's the same way Jesus regarded us. He left eternity for us. May we do the same in working hard in our relationships to glorify him. In doing so, we are setting ourselves aside and we are seeking the things above. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is that which you've given us to not just shape our minds and hearts, but to have a real impact on the lives of people that we, we know. God, help us to be obedient to your truths. Help us to trust you and take you at your word, despite the feeling that I'm going to suffer if I, if I do what is right. Let's not consider ourselves God, but think of the impact that we have on other people. We say today on a Sunday that we, we love you and we're here for the right reasons, but let's show that on Monday through Friday and Saturday. May you get all the honor and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.